The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 97, which along with Psalms 99 and 100 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, May the 31st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are looking today, at continuing our look at uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 7, verses 10 to 15, and then skip forward to verse 23 through verse 27, continuing in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10 today, verses 1 to 17, and then in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. So we're moving towards Pentecost. Uh, we which will be this Sunday coming up. So um, it's when the Lord gave the Spirit to the church, to the people of God, when the Spirit was poured out on all flesh, 10 days after the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. What we see in Ezekiel, remember yesterday, what he was told to do was act out God's judgment against um, the city and against the nation, both Israel and Judah. And so here now... We have, behold the day, behold it comes. Your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. In other words, sin has flourished and reached its full flower, or at least as far as God's going to allow it to flower. And so judgment is now announced. The time has come for this to happen. And he says, none of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be any preeminence among them. And remember what, what he had said before is there's going to be drought and famine. There's not going to be enough for anything or anybody. It's barely going to support life. It's going to be, the judgment is going to be so complete that, that life itself will be a struggle to, to live. And so what he's saying is, is that, that this is going to fall on everybody, not just some of them. It's going to fall on everybody. And they're, they're going to lose everything that they have, and not only that, people that, that are called kings or people that are called noblemen or whatever among them are, are not even going to matter anymore. There's going to be no such idea of, of differentiation between people at all by economics or power or whatever other measure you might lose. No, they're going to lose everything that gave them preeminence. And so everybody's going to be the same. Everything is going to be flattened. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn for wrath is upon all their multitude. It doesn't matter if you're a buyer or a seller. It's not going to go well for you. The seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. And what does that mean? What, what kind of life is it that can't be maintained? Does it mean they're all going to die? Well, no, obviously it doesn't because many of them go into exile. But they're not going to be able to maintain their life in the way that it had been before. And so life is going to change. There's nothing you can do to maintain life the way it is today. It's, you're going to lose everything, period, end of sentence. They've blown the trumpets and made everything ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is upon all their multitude. It doesn't matter what you do. There's no purpose in going out. You're, not, you're going to be slaughtered if you go out. There's nothing you can do. There's no reason for battle at all because God's judgment, his wrath, is upon all all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. So pick your poison. Go out and die by the sword or stay here and deal with pestilence and famine. 
he was in the field, dies by the sword, and he was in the city, uh, famine and pestilence devour. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I'll bring the worst of the nations to take possessions of their houses. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing to say about his people. But, but we need to see things the way God does. And so literally, is it, are these violent places? It, it, there's multiple ways of committing violence against one another, and, and it all relates to not loving your neighbor. And then so how do we love our neighbors? Well, we don't take advantage of them. We don't, we don't do all kinds of things. But from God's perspective, remember when Jesus says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, do no murder, but, but I tell you this, that if you've spoken ill of your brother, if you, if you say these things about your brother, then you've done those things. Don't commit adultery. But I tell you this, if you looked on a woman with lust in your eyes, then you've, in your heart you've committed adultery. And so from God's perspective, the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. And, and that's the opposite of loving your neighbor. And so it's, it's bearing false witness. It's uh, coveting. It's murder. It's um, adultery. It's all those things. In God's eyes, those things are violence and wickedness. And Jesus tells us exactly what that looks like. And so we can understand God's judgment here. When you, when you look around and you maybe don't see bloody crimes and violence, God does. Because he sees your heart. And he sees what's wrong. He said, I'll bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I'll put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. Not only the holy places they set up on the hills with the Asherah poles and the Baal worship and all that stuff. No, even the temple itself is going to be profaned. And disaster comes upon, when anguish comes, they'll seek peace, but there shall be none. There's not going to be any place for you to find peace. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. In other words, it's just, it's just it's this unrelenting kind of thing. So even when disaster is not happening, rumors of disaster are coming. And these are room, ill rumors. And so there's no peace. Even when there's not a disaster coming, there's no peace because of these rumors of what's happening next. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. In other words, if you don't follow the law, if you don't take counsel of the elders, that they have failed you. The priests and the elders have failed you in every single way. There's no reason to go seek prophecy and visions unless you're being obedient, unless you are seeking the Lord. Don't seek prophecy. Seek him and his righteousness. The king mourns. The prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. In other words, all up and down the social chain, everybody is experiencing the same thing. According to their way, I will do to them. According to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I'm the Lord. So whatever, whatever you do, I'm going to do it in spades. And it's, it's, it, I'm going to show you what it looks like to me. You're going to experience what I've experienced all these years and watching you turn away from me and seek after other gods and and fail to observe my commandments. I, I'm going to show you exactly what that's going to look like. I'm going to come at you in the same way that you've come at me. In the gospel, remember yesterday, they were, they were headed towards Jerusalem for the final time. And so they had come to the Samaritan village and where they where Jesus sent people ahead to prepare a place for him there, and, and they refused him. They provided no hospitality for him, and James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven in judgment. 
And then now, after this, as he's going towards Jerusalem, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. In other words, go prepare the people there to receive. And so he sends these on ahead. As he sent the messengers into the Samaritan town, so now he sends these 72, two by two, into other towns to prepare them for the coming of the king. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Is that the way we see the world? Do we see the world as an incredibly plentiful mission field, or are we intimidated by the world in such a way that that we don't see that, that we see something far less than that, and and we're looking for dribs and drabs and, and the one here and there? Or do we go out with confidence believing that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he's saying the problem isn't that, that, that there's no harvest to be had. He says, no, no, no. In fact, the reality is the laborers are few. Now, we can have a lot of church members, but not have many laborers, can't we? We can have a lot of people who belong to the church who never share the gospel with anybody because they're intimidated and they don't believe in the fullness of the gospel. They don't believe that it's completely true, and so they're afraid to share it. They're afraid of rejection. Jesus said, you're going to be rejected. Get over that. Um, We need to to be those who persevere in the faith and the belief that the harvest is plentiful. So he says, don't pray for the harvest. The harvest is already there. Pray for laborers to the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I understand the situation on the ground. I'm not deceived. I don't live in some fantasy land where where the belief is, is that, oh, everybody's going to greet you with joy and gladness. No, 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 no. I know exactly what you're headed into. I, I get it. I get it 100%. And you're going to see that I'm, I'm going to take all the punishment. And you're going to see exactly how bad things really are. Which is, which is what God was saying through Ezekiel. And Jesus is going to show in a very real way what it looks like to reject God and God's, God's answer for sin. So he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Be about your business. Be single-minded about this. Don't bother planning everything out. Trust me. I've already prepared for you wh- where you're going to be and where you're going to go. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it'll return to you. You'll know. (laughs) Boy, are you going to know. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. In other words, you're going to be provided for. As long as you go out and go about my business, you're going to have everything you need. Doesn't mean you're going to have everything you want. You're going to have everything you need. I'm going to make sure that you're provided for in all these ways. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. In other words, we're walking away from here. We're taking nothing from you. Even the dust of your town, we're leaving behind as a word against you. We're not even going to take the dust outside the city limits because that, that's how bad it is here. We don't, don't ever say we took anything from you at all, but we're not giving you anything either. But we are telling you the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So on that day, what day is that? Well, that's the day of judgment. And he said it's going to be better for Sodom than it's going to be for them because they saw. They saw something. They, 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 the, the kingdom of God came near. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are Jewish towns. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which are non-Jewish towns, they're pagan towns, uh, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, just like the people did in Babylon in Jonah's day. But it would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, which is where Jesus did huge amounts of ministry. They saw all the things that Jesus did. And the same with Chorazin and Bethsaida. Will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. Because you had a witness. You saw these things. Jesus was among you, and you rejected him even after hearing and seeing all that he said and all that he did. The one who hears you hears me. You're my ambassadors. And the Spirit is going with you. And and so whenever you speak of me and speak in my name, then they're going to hear you exactly as though they heard me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. You're, You're my ambassadors, period, end of sentence. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And who is the one who sent him? Well, it's the Father. It's God. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they experienced the success that comes along with being empowered by the Spirit. And so they were able to speak to demons and and rebuke them in the name of Jesus. So they, they see in going out and taking the risk and going ahead and doing exactly what Jesus tells them to do, they see great missionary success. They know now that this is real. And then in the in the uh, passage from Hebrews today, remember yesterday we looked at the writer telling them that, that once you've tasted all this and once you've participated in it, and then to, to turn away and, and lose your faith in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus— then there's no way to restore you. And he's, he's at pains to say this is all based in faith. It's not based in that old system. He said, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear than himself, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when, when you see the covenant ceremony, remember that Abraham is told to get the animals and cut them in half, and then make an alleyway between the pieces, and then in the evening he sees a smoking fire pot going between there. God's swearing by himself. That's exactly what this is referring to. He's swearing by himself, I will do this. It's not dependent on your faithfulness, Abraham, because you're a human. And so you're not going to be able to be that faithful. But I, I don't, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm asking you simply to believe that when I swear by myself, you're showing me by your faith and your obedience going forward that you believe, that you accept that truth. And thus... People, um, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragements to hold fast to the hope set before us. So in the same way that Abraham trusted in God's faithfulness 
to the covenant that he would do all the things that he promised to do, which would be to make his descendants um, numerous and to give them the land, Abraham believed. And, and he, says, he says, in the same way, we're to have that same sort of faith in the cross of Christ. We're to believe, absolutely, period, end of sentence, that he took our sins on him and a punishment for those sins on himself at the cross, and that, that the guilt has been transferred to him, and his righteousness has been transferred to us. And then he seals that with the resurrection. So what it says is that sacrifice that Jesus made, the willing sacrifice that he laid down his life for, for our sake so that we might have life, that, that is a finished work. There's nothing that can be added to it. The, the, the work of salvation is done. It's done on the cross. And the proof that that sacrifice was acceptable is the resurrection. And so now we have faith based in those two things. So he secured it with the oath, and the oath was the resurrection. <clears throat> so he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it, it, it's a odd thing, this whole order of Melchizedek that the writer of Hebrews just latches onto, and, and Jews are baffled by it completely baffled because nobody knows anything really about Melchizedek. So who is he? Where did he come from? What's his lineage and all that kind of stuff? And so they're baffled about what that even means when the, when the writer says this. They must not have been so confused about it in his day, though. But, it, but it's an interesting thing to say that he doesn't have antecedent that's really what it means, is, is that unlike those who are in the Aaronic, the, the priesthood after Aaron, that Aaronic priestly line, that, that one has a lineage. It's easy to trace it, whether you're a descendant of Aaron or not. With, with Melchizedek, he has no predecessor, nor does he have one who comes after him. And so he stands as a unique priest, and he's a priest recognized by God's people because Abraham offered sacrifices and offerings to Melchizedek. And so what he's saying is, is that, that essentially what he's trying to say is that he is a preexistent Christ. It's a theophany. So it's Christ showing himself in the form of this Melchizedek who has come before him. But we can have faith in that because he's not an priest under the line of Aaron. He's a priest under the order of Melchizedek, which was something that was instituted by God prior to the institution of the Aaronic priesthood in the time of Moses. It's important that we have faith, that we believe God, and we believe in him. Both those things matter, and they're different from one another. We believe in him because of what we've seen and what we know, and we believe him for his promises that we believe that things will turn out exactly the way that he has announced that they will.